Ryan highlighted something really interesting, something that I think we do need to spend some time with, because I was really talking about college time and a little bit after that, and that was a, a long time ago. I'm older now. It's kind of making me sad. I'm almost 40, but Ryan and I engaged in a doctorate program at a seminary, and what we ended up doing is me because I like to be different. I don't know why you did it, Ryan, but maybe it was because of some of this stuff. But we engaged in um, a different kind of philosophy that was counter to and problematic with some people at the seminary. And we're not going to get into that story necessarily, but it did lead us to a place where we were comfortable asking these questions and really challenging some of the assumptions. And I thought what we could do is go into what those assumptions are. Well, not the assumptions. We already talked about those. But what I thought we could do is we could go into how we're challenging those basic assumptions. Um, I should just say real quickly that I didn't know what the hell I was getting into and had no idea what postmodern <laughs> stuff even was. So that's how I got into it. I didn't know. <laughs> Yeah, so one of the major assumptions, uh, we'll get to the big one that we really want to talk about, but this is a whole nother conversation, maybe several of them, but a big one is, we've mentioned it a few times here and there, but big T truth. Ryan, from your understanding, what do you mean when you say big T truth? Truth is this objective, very real reality, you know, that is out there somewhere and we just need to figure out what it is or we already know what it is and we need to convince everybody else. Right. So the truth is really that thing that we're guiding our lives by. It goes back to that thing with the scriptures needing to be correct because they are true. Right. So the truth is really the center of of our of our lives. You know, how many times did I hear that? Speak the truth in love, mm-hmm. <laughs> if that part was mentioned. But <laughs> yeah, the truth is the central part of religious life, honestly, I think. Yeah. And I think that if I were to boil down what you said into two phrases, it would be, or two words, objective and accessible. Um, yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so the accessible part of Big T Truth is that everybody should or could know this, right? So there's that phrase, no one's without excuse or no one's with excuse. Right. Paul. That's Romans one, I think. Yeah. Because the idea is that truth is accessible to everyone. It is above all contexts. It's, uh, and I'm kind of blurring these a little bit, but it's above all contexts in order that no matter where you are in the world, no matter how you hear it, No matter what's going on in your life or your situation, you can always have access to it at any time. And that's huge. And I think perhaps the way I heard it applied the most is in the area of ethics, morality, Mm, you know, that kind of thing. So in the sense that it doesn't matter what culture you're from, X, Y, or Z is always wrong. It doesn't matter your experience. It doesn't, none of these other factors matter because wrong is wrong and right is right. You know, it's that simple, basically. Yeah, and you have to be right and not wrong. Right, exactly. Um, And so we believe whatever we believe about Jesus because we are right, and it is the truth. And those people who do not, well, they're probably going to hell. (laughs) And I'm not even really joking. I mean, for some of these things, that would be how it was understood. 
because we believe in truth, the truth, and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth who leads us into the truth, you know, all of these kind of things. Yeah, and the objectivity fits in here really nicely because that's where the plain reading, the plain meaning, that's how we said it, and you said that that's uh, a strain in your, your upbringing too. It's objective, so that means it is detached from context, detached from reality, even though it's the source and the underpinning of all reality. It's detached from it, so that way um, it's true whether or not you believe it to be true is a huge thing I heard. Right. And as a result, then you get this thing where your job is not to talk about the objective truth or question it or think about it. Rather, because it's accessible, your only job is to acquiesce, <laughs> pardon the, the downing, a downer phrase of that, but either to acquiesce or to assent to that. Right. So both this objective and accessible way of thinking about big T truth fits really well with some of the doctrines we talked about. It fits in that, um, you know, inerrancy and infallible, it can't be objective. It's not either one of those. If it's not inerrant, if it's got some error to it, not only can it not be from God, but it can't be objective because anything objective has to be true across the board. And so that creates quite an interesting connection into how I started to problematize some of the things that I was thinking. And what I started to realize is that, and we would talk about this a lot, I'm sure it will come up in podcasts to come for ages, but what I started to discover was objectivity isn't biblical. In other words, the the way that we talk about the Bible comes from a, a philosophical understanding of objectivity rather than from a scriptural understanding of whatever objectivity's correlation would be. And a fairly recent philosophical understanding of objectivity, uh, at least compared to the time span of the <laughs> biblical writings. Right? Exactly. So what then am I to make of this idea that, you know, we didn't, nobody, what, nobody read the Bible correctly until early, you know, what, late 19th century or something, <laughs> whatever yeah. it was? Well, you get into two problems, right? You get into that one, which is, I have the truth, objectively speaking, and here you are in the 1920s, and that's quite the arrogant statement to say. The other side of it is, well, of course nobody or nobody didn't read the Bible right. People did for ages. They just either didn't have a complete objectivity, or they believed what we believed, and we could just say it better than they can. Oh, yeah, that one I think would be true, the second one. But like, I remember learning in seminary about how, you know, like when you're preaching, don't do allegor, don't allegorize too much, right? Um, Because then you're just going to get in stuff that's not in the text, quote unquote. And then I took a class that where we had to read a whole bunch of Athanasius and some of the other <laughs> early church people who that's all they did. Yeah. They didn't do anything that wasn't allegorical. And And I'm reading this stuff about various controversies. And I'm just like, what are we even talking about? This is not what that verse is talking about. And yet, you know, these people were a lot closer in time wise to the apostles than I am. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And like some of the fathers maybe even knew them. And so it's tough that it was tough for me to say, well, wait a minute, I'm reading it right. And they're reading yeah, it wrong. It's fascinating because me, 
because I was an arrogant jerk. <laughs> Me, I was like, well, they're clearly wrong. What were they thinking? Yeah. I remember remember we were reading that one where they were going on and on and on about this one proverb to prove that Jesus was uh, not born, you know, because uh-huh. the whole Aryan controversy. And I looked at you and be like, what the hell? This isn't even about that. Like, why are we talking about this for 60 pages at a time? You know? Yeah, it's really fascinating. And so as I started to discover that about um, objectivity and I started to discover something uh, you know, akin to what you were saying, uh, in terms of uh, discovering the church doctors, really just discovering, I think, in a lot our conversations that you would read the Bible in a different way, and it was both refreshing and confusing because it was like, yeah, well, you guys too, for me, yeah. very much. Like, oh, I never thought of it that way before, and huh, yeah. <laughs> wait, what? What do you mean use of the what now? <laughs> you know, and I think to kind of reemphasize what I said earlier. <sighs> The problem for me with objectivity was it only seemed to be hurting people, right? Mm-hmm. Like objectivity seemed to be the way we decided the in and out groups. Yeah. Um, the church had the truth, the objective truth. Those outside of the church had none and were lost in darkness and hope, hopeless. And, you know, we got a witness to them and save their souls so they can have the truth. And I'm not trying to make a straw man here. I'm really not. I'm just like my experience of that was basically that was the the truth was how we decided who had relationship with God and who didn't. Yeah. And I think for me, I just got really uncomfortable making that determination for other people when I can't figure out what my own what's in my own heart most of the time. Yeah. Me too. I started to discover that when I started to hear some stories of people who fell away from the church. And during my process of this whole thing, I, I started from a place which was categorical. So I would start to say, well, you know, that happens. It's unfortunate, but they're going to hell. <laughs> as weird as that sounds, you know. Um, <laughs> I started to think, okay, what kind of Christ have you walked away from? What story of Jesus have you walked away from? What understanding of him? Because what I started to discover, and and this was with you, of course, and others, but what I started to discover is that not only is the world complex, not only is scripture complex, but, and a duh, right? God is complex. And we want it to be complex. That was the other thing that I was starting to learn is like, man, I hope scripture and God's word is more complex than this easily understandable (laughs) basic instructions before leaving earth. Yeah. And what's really remarkable is that uh, I did want that. I did. I didn't think I did. I think I wanted something at the time, at least I thought I wanted something that I had the secret code for. Uh, (laughs) What does that sound like? Yeah. <laughs> <Secret knowledge. laughs> but now I am just, I am leaning into a more complex, a more, I think, compassionate, I'm trying at least, more compassionate view of people and how they see things. Where yeah. this all fits into scripture and how now I say scripture more than the Bible and where I started to really come to a place of what we're calling maybe deconstruction or really where we're where we are right now or where I am right now is I started to see things more in light of interpretation rather than objective or big T truth. And that was a big it, it required a lot of time, but it was a big shift that I'm still within. But for me a big that was the big move was move from objectivity to 
interpretation. Is that kind of what you were like too, or where you are now? Yeah, I think the other thing is uh, I encountered some people like writers in my um, doctoral work that I won't go into any of their details right now, but that had this idea more of truth being something that you negotiate within a specific context. And there's a lot you could say about that. And that's honestly not entirely fair to boil it down to just that. But for what we're talking about now of it was more that truth is more of a grammar for a community than this uh, objective idea that we just assent to. For me, you know, the truth was always linked to life, right? Like the truth is what leads to life and error or sin or liars, lies, whatever leads to destruction, you know? And yet for me, the truth always caused a tremendous amount of fear. (laughs) You know, the capital T truth was always about people Mm -hmm. going to hell or I was sinful or I was going to miss the rapture or I was backslidden or whatever it is, right? And I didn't understand how that fit with there being no fear in love, right? If God is love and there's no fear in God, why was I afraid of the, why did the truth make me so afraid all the time, like all the time about everything? And that's my own personality and story intersecting there Mm. too. But part of it is this idea that like, if truth is supposed to be life-giving, why does it always inspire terror in me? Well, that is the damage that objectivity can do. Like you've talked about a couple of them. One is the, um, what do I want to say? The ambivalence, that's the word you use. The ambivalence of what the truth means to people. And uh, for me, I'll talk about this a lot, but that brings to bear violence always and ever. It doesn't have to be physical violence, but it brings about violence. When you don't care about other people and you care about the truth, the ultimate result is always violence against somebody else. So that's one big thing that happens with objectivity, the damage that's done with it. The damage that's also done with objectivity is what you just said, is it creates a lot of fear. And I would argue because of the violence that comes from it, We want to avoid that because we don't want to be in pain. We're human beings. And so we're afraid of being in pain. And so we do what we need to Mm -hmm. in order to remove ourselves from possibilities of pain. For sure. I mean, that was what my life became about for other reasons, too. But this one was a big part of that, I'm convinced. And so for you, for, for me, it's almost always something that happens in the brain first. And what I really find interesting is for you... It is the opposite. Yeah, I have an an experience which leads to an emotional reaction, which then is analyzed to death in my brain. Yeah. Yeah. And I start with an intellectual thought that then gets felt and then experienced, or rather experienced and then felt, and then I have to analyze. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how we're, how our systems created such different and yet in some ways such similar <laughs> products. Yeah. <laughs> So something that's really interesting, as we were talking about the Church Fathers and as we were talking about different interpretations, I just wanted to highlight that a bit more and bring that to bear, because what I started to discover, as I said, it was a complex world, a complex Bible, a complex God, and what I started to see was somewhat of a multidimensionality. I don't think I see that as much anymore. In other words, I started to see that you know, for just as an example, 
You have one story, Ryan. I have another story. They all fit in to objectivity or some idea that could be translated into objectivity. And they're both valued, but they are both distinct as well. They can't be boiled down. And that made room for interpretation, but where I started to really move into interpretation more was to realize that your description of reality is different than mine and in both senses of the word, both senses of is different than my experience, but also different reality. It is a different reality. Yeah, I mean, even when you and I have the same experience, like say we're at the same event, our understanding and experience of it is not the same, right? right. Like it's gonna, let's say we're listening to music, it may affect you differently than it does me. You may like it, I may hate it. Whatever it is, even though we're doing exactly the same thing, our realities on that are different. And yeah. I think reality then becomes something we figure out together, like we negotiate it mm-hmm. in our in, in so that we can understand what happens to us. Well, and one of the big things that we are taught when we were, you know, if we were to jump back into the inheritance, you've heard this tons of time, Ryan. I'm I'm sure you have. Others maybe not who are listening, but um, the four uh, the four people who jump into the pit and feel around for the way out, and there's an elephant in the pit, right? And yeah. then you've got you've got somebody feeling a trunk, you've got somebody feeling a tail, you've got somebody feeling the ear in the the leg, and they all have different expressions of the truth, but the truth remains, it's an elephant, even if one thinks they're looking at a snake, one a tree trunk, and so on and so forth. That's how a lot of people fit in objective truth and different experiences, but that still lends itself to violence, and it's not really valuing those interpretations. It is limiting them and putting them into a a wider interpretation that is objectivity. Well, yeah. And it's saying that my experience of the elephant as tail <laughs> is uh, the one that's the most real, right? It's the one that, that counts. And the elephant or whatever this thing is, is not a tree. It is not. No, it's like a snake because that's what it is. Yeah. You know? So you get either on the side of objectivity where you can look at everybody, and I'm just being completely unfair here, but you can look at everybody and say, look at all these idiots. They think they're touching snakes and trees and whatever, but they're actually touching an elephant. Or you could have people inside the pit, and this is like, a metaphor for Christianity, arguing that their grasp of the elephant is the right one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is where our religious movement came around and got the Bible right. <laughs> exactly. And for me, I just started to really find that an unhelpful way of thinking about interpretation. And I started to really explore how our interpretations are more useful. I started with pragmatism, that they're more useful and they help us get through our lives. And that eventually I got to a place where I'm just starting to really question, are we all grasping the elephant or are we really seeing different things? Well, and I think the other kind of related to that for me is I was realizing, you know, whatever group you belong to, whatever tradition, denomination, whatever it is, they're all have important things to add. And, you know, like I didn't know much about your brand of Lutherans before I spent 
too many years at the seminary, right? And there were things that I learned there that were foreign and to my understanding that I didn't know about and probably never would have. And mm-hmm. yet, so what am I supposed to make of the fact that all these people have certain, everybody has something that I look at and go, wow, that's really beautiful. I'm glad I, I learned about that. But how come I didn't know that before? You know, And if I had only stuck within my own limited spot, I never would have known those other things and I would have missed Stuff. And the big thing for me is that that's absolutely true. I would also add that it is not accessible to you completely, right? So uh, one of the things that I always love to in our conversations is how experience is not completely accessible to me in the way that it is to you. I cannot right. get there. Right. I love the Catholics because... Uh, you know, believe you me, I'm a, a true Protestant. I have some issues with Catholicism. Not a crypto Catholic, huh? <laughs> yeah, just to be clear, I have big, bigger problems. <laughs> if you're going to get mad at me about anything, it won't be that. <laughs> Not that, yeah. <laughs> but I love their sense of mystery. Like, I think you had a project where you had to go to a Catholic church, and that's what struck you was just how they have a grasp on mystery that I cannot as a Protestant ever really get. Yeah. I spent my whole life being kind of told or explicitly sometimes told that all that stuff is nonsense and mumbo jumbo and all this. And then I went to one um, and said, Hey, wow, there's something, it's not what I want for my church experience every week, but there's something beautiful in this. It's showing me something. It's teaching something. It's um, showing some kind of truth that I that was entirely absent from my experience before. And this. I think that's the beauty of interpretation. It, it moves away from hey, we're all studying the same elephant, um, and we just call it different things, or we have different aspects of it. But more importantly, we are all ex- interpreting something that we. It is a shared experience in some sense of the word. God, you know, God is the same for us in some sense of the word. However, we interpret, or let's say the Bible, since that's what we're talking about. The Bible is the same for us. However, because we're interpreting it, we have access to that in a very different way, depending on our interpretation. Well, and isn't that's a good thing. Like that's, yeah. I want, otherwise, if it wasn't like that, you know, there's only so many words in the Bible, right? And it's been around for a very long time and it's been studied a lot and it's been preached <laughs> on how many billions of sermons at this point, right? And I really, really hope and I believe that it's got things to say throughout all of this time and all of that stuff because <laughs> it speaks in different ways at different times to different people. Absolutely. Otherwise, know that it's really very useful outside of its original context. We want that. We really do. We want that. And that's where the complexity fits for me. I want Catholics in my life that help me see mystery in a way that I can't. Not God's mystery, but their mystery and how that's impacted them. And then I can bring that into my interpretation uh, inadequately, but enough to learn from it, to change, and to grow as a result of that. Yeah. And, you know, it also takes a lot of pressure off. I mean, sometimes it's tough because really I would like to know the answer to everything. I'm kind of like that, you know. But it takes a lot of pressure off because now I don't have to decide who gets to go to heaven or not. Mm -hmm. I don't have to 
decide uh, who's right and who's wrong on every point of doctrine. I don't have to decide, um, you know, if it's okay for Catholics to believe what they do about communion or whatever it is. It's more of, no, I think we're existing in this world together and we're experiencing it in different ways and we're all doing our best (laughs) to be faithful Mm. as the Spirit shows us how to be. Yeah, I love that. That's absolutely true. And it, it creates a beauty in this life that I did not have before. Right. It takes a grayscale thing and puts color to it. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. All right. So we've spent some time talking about what uh, in, what Scripture looks like in terms of our inheritance. Uh, what did we inherit from our traditions, our uh, understanding of those traditions, and um, what that meant for us. And we've also gone through something of an abridged version of some of the stuff that we, Ryan and I, have both uh, pondered and gone through in terms of not necessarily problematizing, but at least asking questions and seeing some issues with the way we've been told Scripture should operate. And now we're going to spend a bit of time talking about why we still value Scripture. There's something about Scripture that we still, as Christian people, cling to. And Ryan and I have talked about this probably it's been more recently, hasn't it? I don't think it's really been—we've spent a great deal of time talking about some of the issues that have come up in our own thinking. But I think it's probably been only, what, nine months to a year that we've been talking about how— our ideas have maybe evolved. Uh, that's the wrong word. Yeah. Have no. I. I mean. I think that's a fair word. I think it's not the only word, but I think it's certainly one that applies. Yeah. And so we wanted to do a little bit of that with you because that's pretty much what this podcast is about. We want to eventually get to a place where we start talking about the things that we think are important and still valuable within what we hear and what we've learned. And so we're going to do that. But I want to make a disclaimer. It's something that Ryan and I just talked about. And the disclaimer is this, that um, we are not saying anything that we previously believed is wrong uh, or that what we have come to is what we're definitively in. Uh, That's a very simplistic way of viewing faith in general, and perhaps that's something we can talk about in the future. We don't think of ourselves, uh, well, maybe Ryan, you can say something about this, but I don't think of myself in terms of categories. So I don't say, I am definitely this, and everything that this category is applies to me. Well, I was not searching for a new category. I'm somewhere, if I could be so bold, through all those categories. I think for me, it's maybe more of this idea that I don't know what categories apply. You know, like I, I think I, excuse me, I would like very much to have categories because they make sense and are comforting and are, you know, in some ways easier. But as we've kind of talked about, the categories just none of them seem to work, right? Is it because they were wrong? I don't know. I think it's more that they created problems that we've were talking about previously, whatever kind of problems those were. So, yeah, categories only get you so far and what happens when you don't fit in them anymore is kind of what we've been doing today. Yeah, and we've also been wanting to encourage each other and encourage anyone who happens to listen to this 
to be comfortable asking the questions and exploring, that's why it's called Frontier, exploring the difficulties and the possibilities. Because I say this often with my congregation, God's a big boy. He can handle pretty much anything we throw at, well, not pretty much, everything we throw at him. And, And to think of a God who's not okay with you teetering on the brink of uncertainty or certain questions just does not seem like a very loving and accepting God that we see in Scripture. It sounds more like fear and um, control to me. Yeah, and, you know, I think, honestly, I don't I don't think either of us have the intention that, you know, if you believe the Bible is infallible, inerrant, like we were talking about, Okay, fine. Like I, I'm not trying mm-hmm. to change your mind on that as much as have you really thought about what that means or whatever it is we're talking about, but have you really thought about what that means and how it affects people? Right. I think that's the moving beyond the category part is like categories are classifications and labels and ways of understanding, but they don't they can't speak to the lives of real people the same way. I just, they're not able to, whatever your category is. And so I think that's more what we're trying to get at here is how do these things affect real people? And if there are problems, then where does that leave yeah, you? Yeah, and I think I think it really fits well into our previous conversation throughout this podcast, which is that ideas have consequences. We cannot believe any longer, at least you and I cannot believe it any longer, that objectivity is neutral, that it is just something that is true no matter what and consequences be damned because there are so many people that get hurt by ideas and so many problems that come from those ideas. And what we want to resist, of course, is that old cliche, the baby with the bathwater. But at the same time, what we want to resist is that it's not possible to question or ask questions about this. Yeah, I mean, like you were saying, there is it is not possible for categories to be created without like there's so much power wrapped up in categorizing, naming, labeling, whatever it is, because whoever creates and enforces or teaches or writes about or whatever it is, those categories, whatever they are, you're like we said earlier, you have the power then to decide whether you intend it that way or not. You have power over other people. You know, and there is no neutral way to do that for any of us. That's that's part of the problem there, especially in this is maybe a separate issue, but especially in Western Christianity, because it means that generally speaking, the straight white men have been the ones who had all that power. Yeah. You know, and so it just is problematic in all kinds of ways. And so I think if we were to push on where we're coming from, people uh, who still live within that area of where we come from theologically, what we would just ask you is not to think that we're trying to convert you, as as Ryan said. Uh, we don't even know what we would be converting you right. to. <laughs> what would we be converting you to, yeah. <laughs> but really, we're just asking that simple question. Have you considered or a request to please consider how your ideas, how your theology impacts other people, and to add to this conversation that we hopefully will have with you, because we're coming from only our stories. And so we cannot possibly, that's one of the joys of like moving away from objectivity altogether, is that you cannot describe and dictate what other people go through. 
And so we can only say what we think and what we feel and what we believe. And we would really like to know, like, have you considered these ideas and what they do to people? And how do you handle that? Because each one of us handles it differently. Well, and I think when you're talking about a lot of these ideas, the consequences are too big to not consider their implications on real people and the lives of real people. When you're talking to people about their your understanding of their eternal destination, for example, I mean, you got to think about what that really does in people's lives, because otherwise, it's not just that power dynamic. It's like none of us want to do violence to people, theologically speaking. Well, right. I don't think Most. if you do, you're you're another problem, you know, yeah. um, but that's that's why it matters. It's why you have to think about it more and just more than just in terms of what is true and what is right. It's not that that doesn't matter, but that's not the only question. Right. Yeah. So then let's move on to talking about where we are with Scripture. Um, we don't want to abandon it. We, we're not quite sure we can say definitively we are in such and such in place. But where are you right now as you're exploring Scripture with these concerns that we've brought up? For me, I think one thing I've really wanted to keep and hang on to is this idea of this of scripture being a story that I'm a character in, you know, that we all are characters in. That is something that didn't end with the closing of the canon, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, really love the picture that creates, and it really helps me to understand parts of my life as a Christian. You know, I'm doing the best I can to play my part given to me by the Spirit. And I have to follow the Spirit's directions while I do so. And sometimes I'm going to mess up, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the script is very clear and sometimes it requires a lot more um, improvisation. (laughs) So I really really like that part. And that helps me when some of these other things we've talked about don't line up or seem to be contradictory or are just really hard to accept for whatever reason. It helps me to remember that what we're talking about is not just a principle, a list of principles or rules from the text. There's more to it than that. So it's narrative combined with, because um, you said the rule book uh, was your um, upbringing. So it sounds like it's a, yeah, evolution of both of those. It is. And, you know, I think. To give an, just an example here, um, one that's been really, I mean, it's always bothered me, but that's really been bothering me lately is the, the portions of scripture in the Old Testament where it seems to imply that God commands the Israelites to kill children, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard lots of explanations for that, and I don't want to talk about that forever. It's just an example of what I'm talking about, though. And none of them were great. You know, um, they all like all of those kinds of questions, they just don't ever get far enough. And so this idea, though, that I'm in an evolving story has led me to wonder, okay, so what do I do with those passages? I mean, is it something that maybe I don't have to adhere to in the same way I thought that I used to think I needed to? You know, do I have the freedom to question of, hey, maybe those particular passages aren't supposed to be in there like they are, you know, and I know that makes a lot of people afraid and me too sometimes still. But 
it just, I think, has given me a lot more freedom to try and ask questions about, yeah, but so what do I actually do with this? Besides just say, well, I don't understand it, and the Bible is God's word, so it must be fine. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you're exploring how Scripture speaks to your life now instead of how Scripture is a universal uh, rule book or or ancient story and how it could possibly fit into your story today. Right, right. It's not that it's not even so much about, well, I have to decide this passage belongs in the Bible and this one doesn't, mm-hmm. right? Because eventually that's going to get you into the same kinds of problems we're talking about with right. the other idea, right? But it's more about, yeah, but it's okay to ask questions about, well, does it? Or what does that mean if we take it to its conclusion about God, you know? Or you know, if that's true, where does that leave us? Like, it's okay to ask those questions and follow them through, even though it makes me uncomfortable and leads to conclusions I may not like, or ones that I do like, but then they create all kinds of other questions, you know? But the freedom it's created is, yeah, but it's okay to to follow those avenues. Um, whereas before, I don't really think I was usually capable of doing that. I usually fell back on this idea that, well, the Bible's God's word. It's perfect. So I guess I just don't have that knowledge I need yet. Yeah. You know where I experienced that? That's not my answer to where scripture is for me, but you know where I experienced that the most in grad school was actually with all of our philosophers that um, I really enjoy and you kind of put up with was um, the story of Abraham and Isaac. Well, I, I Abraham became an important character for me, but in a different way than you. And we can talk about that some other time. So, um, yeah. But yes, I know what you mean. Yes. Because you have Kierkegaard who does fear and trembling, right? And then you have Derrida and you have Heidegger and you have others that start to work off of that. And what was fascinating to me about that, to to use what you've said in terms of, uh, I understand what you're going for, at least I think I do, is that each one of those spoke to a different reality or a different aspect of my reality that I could see that story, not as something where I have to say, you know, what kind of father would take out their son to the middle of a mountain, in the middle of the desert and a mountain, preparing to kill him, which is the old, tired argument around scriptures like that, scripture passages like that, instead asking, okay, in my day and age right now, where I am with the thoughts that are in the water, if you will, how do I approach something like this? And with all of those philosophers, of course, how can I learn something about something pretty deep accordingly? It sounds kind of like what you were driving at. Yeah. I mean, I think part of me says, well, no, I am still thinking about those tired old questions because I was never able to before. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think kind of tying it together for me is that for me, I think framing this in terms of the narrative, not just of scripture, but the narrative of faith from Adam till the end of all things, you know, um, and my part in it. It's let me ask the questions of, okay, let's move beyond the textual elements of this verse. Let's not talk about the grammar as the only thing that answers it. Let's let's move mm-hmm. past the historical context, whatever that stuff is, mm-hmm. right? And say, yeah, but how do I understand the character of God as revealed in this story of faith? 
And it's kind of let me reframe the questions about that then of, okay, so my experience of God, my understanding of God has been X, Y, or Z. Given that, how do I look at some of these passages now? And it's not a, okay, there, now I'm all good with all of them. It's fine. I figured it out. (laughs) But the reframing process has really helped to kind of refocus me into a healthier way of actually dealing with some of these things I've never been able to before. Yeah. So Nate, what has this process looked for look like for you? I know you talked some about like how you've used different philosophers and that that kind of thing, but uh, you know, what is this process of reexamining and and all of that kind of stuff looked like for you? Yeah, so for the philosophers themselves, uh themselves, what was really fascinating to me again in in the story that I have is that I noticed people who were not Christians or not Christians that traditionally fit the mold uh, <laughs> were still very comfortable talking about the Bible and even talking about it as if it's true. I mean, they weren't talking about it as if it was, let's say, literally true. Um, and you know that's a wow, that's a big conversation for another time. But yeah. to just have a respect for the text, for the stories, for the characters, that was something that was quite remarkable to me. And yeah, I was told that that was impossible. I know, you know, right? It's like, what happens when you're reading this non-Christian, uh, postmodern philosopher type who seems to have an insight about the gospel I've never heard a Christian say before? That's a good one. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So the big one, of course, and we've talked about this a while, maybe it would be a topic sometime, but... To know that Jacques Derrida, a French philosopher that gets a lot of ire in our world today, uh, could visualize and explain grace in a way that opened up (laughs) Paul to me, just like blew my mind. I could not handle that at first. Right. It wasn't supposed to be possible. Yeah. And so here I am. I'm I'm dealing with a lot of things in graduate school. I'm dealing with a lot of things because of uh, my story. And here these philosophers are giving me exactly what I've been asking. And sometimes, you know, if we were to put that reading into a conversation, those questions that I were bringing, I was bringing to other people, they would say, you know, that's a really stupid question. Here's a better one. <laughs> it does happen sometimes. It happens it? quite a bit. And you're like, you know what? That is a better question. And then, of course, they don't answer that better question, which just makes it also great. And so, what I learned from the philosophers was that. And I also learned uh, the big thing. I said in my story that I could smell out really quickly if somebody was just giving me bullshit as an answer. It was like, you don't really know what's going on, but you're so um, either arrogant or afraid or whatever. I don't want to go into the intentions, but you're just not willing to tell me you don't know. And to have these philosophers have these big ideas and ultimately come to a place where they have a logic, but the logic is an unknown logic in many ways. Hmm. was refreshing, especially when it came to, let's say, Abraham and Isaac. It was like, so we don't really need to answer the questions of why would Abraham do this, because the endeavor of exploration within that, with Kierkegaard, let's use a safer one, with Kierkegaard was satisfying enough that it almost, in a purely 
um, logical way, it almost satisfied the desire to just have that story in there or satisfied the need to have that story in there. Yeah. And I think I think what I appreciate about those folks, too, is don't get me wrong. There's plenty of philosophers who will give you plenty of bullshit. But um, <laughs> the ones that we're talking about here, the ones that we were reading and and uh, having to wrestle with, I think what I noticed is that they were willing to do what we've been talking about in terms of not just the Bible, but anything really of they have this problem. They ask all the questions and they chase those questions wherever they go. Mm-hmm. They don't get stopped in the middle because, oh, gosh, I guess we can't go there, you know, yeah. um, which I always wondered, wait, why can these people do this? But me, a Christian, why can't I, you know? Yeah. And the freedom of being able to do that is just remarkable because you, then you really because it's those moments where you hit the wall and it becomes uncomfortable that define interpretation for me. If if you can get through that and get to a place where you're comfortable and where you're faithful at the same time, then you're in a really good place. And, and of course, that's a process. Who knows how long that takes? It depends on the translation. I'm sorry, it depends on the passage, on the person, and, and so much more. But to push through that was really encouraging to see philosophers say, well, you know, (laughs) they're saying something really uncomfortable here, but as they're going, they're not making it less uncomfortable, but they're making it more plausible. And that was really fascinating. Yeah. And I think, um, not to go back to narrative again, (laughs) but like, I think about, you can find I don't know, maybe, I don't know about every, but how many characters in the Bible had to go through those same kinds of uncomfortable um, states? Because think about all the prophets and what God told them to do. It's like, wait, you want me to marry a prostitute so I can teach an, obje- an object lesson to, right. to these people? Or Jesus says, God, I really would prefer we do this some other way, you know? Um, <laughs> I'll do it anyway, you know? But, uh, or, you know, Paul goes to his own people and does it like, over and over again, you find characters put in places where they have to engage these things that make them not just uncomfortable, but aren't the way that things are supposed to be. Yeah. You know? And so why should we expect it to be any different? Yeah. And for me, that's that, that gave a permission to start asking questions and start approaching the text in a brand new way. And um, for me, it was really, it started, and Ryan, you know this of me probably better than most. It really started by reading the the scriptures philosophically, and that's just because that's what I was reading all the time. And so I would always wonder some sort of philosophical, philosophical question, and, uh, you know, that that satisfies me. I really enjoy that. But then as that was um, being accepted by Ryan and by others to just, you know, hey, those are really interesting thoughts. I hadn't thought of that before. And then, you know, engaging in conversation, what I ultimately started to get to, and it's kind of where I am now, is because of that freedom, that permission, I started to read the Bible not through the lens of logic and philosophy, but because of the kind of philosophy that I really enjoyed, I started to really resonate with reading the Bible. It's going to sound stupid, but as a human being. That doesn't sound stupid at all. I mean, I think, (laughs) I think that sounds like 
it's a it's like we sort of talked about this earlier, but hey, this text really is alive, right? It's speaking to you and me as a human being. It's speaking to these, whether they know it or not, these continental philosophers as human beings in the situations they're in in their lives. Like I'm starting to realize that this kind of stuff is not dangerous. It's really showing, I think, how God can really work through the text in a way that I don't know that I was able to apprehend or um, admit earlier. Yeah. So let me tell you a story of how that kind of happened. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he is a pastor as well. And he was saying to me that through the conversations we were having, he started to read Genesis. And what he said he noticed the most by reading Genesis was how much God wasn't there. You know, that tickled me like crazy because I was dealing with absence and Derrida, and that's just, you know, wonderful, and I could play with that forever. But when it came to this kind of conversation about how do you read the Bible, I started to think, huh, so what's going on here is that human beings are basically living their lives— And they're struggling, perhaps with different questions, probably, because it's a different time. But God enters into that rather than as a puppeteer guiding it all. And and so to say that differently, and to say that in story narrative voice, um, God's not telling the story as a great narrator and making sure, or rather the author, uh, that's probably going to be scandalous, but not the author of this story, but rather he is a crucial person within that. Note I did not say character. uh, A crucial person within that that enters into the stories and adjusts uh, the characters according to his love, rather than orchestrating some great drama that weird mere pawns in. And for the, me, that was a, a crucial big step to make because I think, um, thinking about it now through a lot, a lot of our conversation here, I really did think that's how God did everything. It was a big drama. And, you know, to tie into what you were saying, he was done once the church, the early church was done. Now it was up to us. And all we have to do is repeat what we've been doing forever until he comes back. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, interesting thing. You know, I just, it's funny how my, my uh, biblical heritage in, in this sense still comes up even through all of this. And Mm -hmm. so one thing that always happened in my world is that pastors and people, you know, who are the quote unquote, like uh, super Christians, you know, always had a scripture for everything, right? Because they knew the Bible so Mm -hmm. well. And I don't mean this to say, haha, see, uh, we win because the Bible says so. But it's just making me think of that scripture, you know, where it says the word of God is living and active, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it needs to be able to do these kind of things. Or otherwise, I don't know that it's alive. It certainly isn't very active. And that's how it goes on to like, doesn't it say like divide soul from marrow and like cut, cut through everything? Like, yeah. Um, so yeah, all of that to say is I'm, I'm, even though it is a scary process and it's led 
to a lot of scary questions and walking in the dark and not knowing. And that has its own, honestly, sometimes even terror, right? I'm not trying to be dramatic there. It's sometimes mm-hmm. it's felt that way. Yeah. It's also been very life-giving. And it's very weird how those two have can often go together that way. Yeah, it is. It is. For me, I think what I've really enjoyed is... It has made it so we talked about how objective uh, and accessible is basically what needed to happen with interpretation before uh, or with the way scripture is. And for me, what I started to discover is that objectivity isn't very accessible, even though that's what people try to teach and what, what they want you to grab on to. What I started to discover by reading it as a human being is that it's very accessible now. It makes a lot more sense. And I do this with um, people in my congregation. I don't go with, uh, whenever we do a Bible study, I don't go through it and, you know, tell them what it's supposed to say (laughs) according to either the company line or my thoughts or whatever. I start to ask questions of, you know, hey, these are human beings in this story. Why are they acting the way that they need, that they're acting right now? And and how would I act in that situation? You know, yeah. Um, like, what would I? What could I see myself doing or not doing if God said to me X, Y, or Z, or if I um, was in charge of this group of people who were really ungrateful and wanted to go back to Egypt, or what? You know, whatever it <laughs> right. is. Um, I find, like you were saying, um, that's made the text come alive in a way that it wasn't before because it was it was about content it was about principle it was about how do i preach this text it was about how do i understand what's the grammar whatever it is mm-hmm. you know well and i think if i were to say like so we're we're being very careful because um not careful in terms of we're worried and scared but careful because we know what we're what we actually do believe and so we're not saying these things are wrong but this kind of thing helps me understand my issues with inerrancy a lot more because personally what's going on with inerrancy is that, let me just back up for a second. The irony of this is, is that the way the text becomes more accessible to me is when I realize it's more speaking to me as a human being rather than that it's coming as God's word. Hmm. And Hmm. To me, that was just a really like strong and stark reality. And then I started to tie, as I was just saying, I tie that into inerrancy and um, so forth. And I start to wonder, maybe that was my main problem with those two things. It's not that necessarily those doctrines are wrong, because we're not saying that, but that the hangups I had around that was it made me read the Bible in order to prove those things rather than read the Bible, read scripture as a way to relate to who I am and how I think about things. Yeah, and and uh, what it's really helped me start to move away from, and, and I want to be clear here and say that this is what I think I had developed, and I'll, I won't make a conclusion about the entire Pentecostal movement, whether they have done this or not, or even evangelicals, right? Because I'm talking about me here. We could talk about it, but it's, um, for me, I think I had developed a, oh gosh, what's the word when you worship the Bible, right? Biblio, bibliolatry or whatever it is. 
this idea that um, nobody would say this, of course, but the the word of God, the text of the Bible had become so important that in some ways I think I was venerating it. I was um, it was more important than the actual word of God, Jesus Christ, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this kind of stuff has helped me to move away from that. And it's not that the Bible isn't the word of God. It's not that it isn't inspired. It's not that, like we said, we've been saying all along, God is still speaking to us through it, right? Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it's even the way he does the most, the way he most often speaks to us. But um, I found that I couldn't stay exactly where I was before, because for me personally, it had gotten me into some problematic areas um, in terms of what the Bible was and how it was functioning for me. You know, it'd be interesting at some time for us to explore how our um, traditions helped us along this path instead of, and we're not saying this, but it could be heard that we're leaving our traditional understandings of things um, and really our traditions, period. Uh, that's not what's going on. It could be heard that way, but it would be interesting to know where those uh, points of, uh, for me specifically, since I'm Lutheran, I you know go to Luther not terribly often, but enough to, uh, and, and I'm sorry, when I do go to Luther, what I start to discover is that he's helping me discover more of what I'm actually thinking and processing rather than refuting it. Right. And I mean, like for me, I mean, Pentecostals are are, are all about narrative experiential theology, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this, this whole understanding I have of uh, the living narrative of scripture, it, for me, it was formed directly out of the theology I was brought up in, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm with you. I'm not trying to throw out my theological heritage because there's too much in there that I would not want to leave. You know, it's it's not just a part of me. I think it's a good thing. So, yeah, I mean, those traditions have certainly, as much as they have in some ways created the problems we're talking about, they've also, I think, shaped the way we've been trying to deal with them and figure out where to go from here. Yeah. And here's something that I heard from or read in Luther. Um, I don't have it prepared and maybe I'll put it in uh, in some sort of note form or something where it actually came from. Uh, and I'm pretty sure, because I'm very careful of not saying things that are, unar- that are unauthorized quotes, but I'm pretty sure this is true for Martin Luther. He said um, something to the effect that the Bible is the cradle for the Word of God. And what I love about that is he's talking about interpretation, he's talking about all this um, when it comes to that, and he's saying, you know, the Bible is not the Word of God. It is the cradle for the Word of God. And therefore, you know, his whole endeavor was to find Jesus in everything. And so he drew on the church fathers because of the analogy that we talked about before, um, the way that he, they read scripture. Um, and he was he was a little uncomfortable when he did that too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it it puts the Bible away from that biblicism. Um, right. It moves it away from there and says, no, the Bible is only good insofar as it points us to Jesus. Now, that's what Luther would say. Well, and I don't have a problem with that. Right. I mean, so yeah. for us, it's always been about, well, the Holy Spirit. Right. But what does the spirit do? The spirit also right. points us to Jesus. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, I think 
I, I'm with Luther on that. You know, Luther wasn't always a very nice person, <laughs> but <I'm, laughs> I mean, sometimes he was, but I'm sure glad that he did and wrote a lot of the things that he did. Yeah. More importantly, it's interesting to me that the faith tradition that really focuses primarily on an idolatry of the Bible in some sense of the word, the beginner or the forebearer of all of that warned against that in some sense. Hmm. It's just is not ironic. It's just interesting to me that that's what happened. So we've spent a good amount of time talking about Scripture, and we've gone through three basic things that we wanted to talk about. We talked about our heritage and really uh, more specifically what we inherited uh, from our traditions and from our parents and from our culture when it comes to what the Bible is. Then we shared how different ideas came to us through our studies and through our life experiences that really made it so that we had to reconsider or at least question that heritage and that inheritance that we received. And we spent a good deal of time of questioning, um, not in a sense of definitively saying these things are wrong, but questioning them in terms of what we've gone through and what we've thought about. And finally, we spoke a little bit about what we think would be a good way forward, or rather what would be a good uh, thing of Scripture that we could take from this conversation or from this thought process. And throughout that process, Ryan and I, if we'll, I'll be honest, I'm going to share just where I am. I'm sure Ryan's in the same place. We've been kind of anxious about this. We're not really worried per se, but we're kind of anxious about it because we don't see a lot of people doing this. We don't see a lot of people. I don't know. Do you see it still now, Ryan? Do you see people doing this kind of stuff publicly? I think that I am seeing it more than I used to, especially in, um, and this is not an assault on any particular generation or age group or whatever, Mm -hmm. but I am seeing it a little more in people our age, um, some of whom have similar questions to we, that we do, but generally speaking, I haven't seen a lot of it, you know, Um, I wouldn't say it's totally absent because, you know, Nate and I are not the only ones asking these kinds of questions, of course, but um, it does seem to be a needed thing that is not as prevalent as I you know, as I think we would all hope it would be. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking, I shared this image with you. I was talking with a friend at a conference that I went to uh, earlier this year. And uh, he, he shares a lot of my sensibilities. He shares a lot of the things that I think um, are, can be problematized and needs to be addressed. And we were talking for a while. And as I was talking with him, I just thought, you know, what kind of animal is the animal that, you know, pokes its head up every once in a while just to make sure things are okay? And the animal that came to my mind was the meerkat. Meerkats are ones that live underground most of the time and, or at least, you know, layman's version of this. Um, And they'll poke up their head every once in a while from the grass or from the ground or whatever. And they'll make sure there are no hawks around. And if they sense any danger, they go right back down. And what 
at least in my imagination of that, is that it can be kind of a lonely experience. It can be something where you kind of you're the one that has to poke your head up to make sure that everything's safe for your family or for whatever it is. And then if it's not, then you've got to you know hide. And what I said to this friend of mine is, hey, I'm poking my head up here. And all of a sudden you're poking your head up too. And I see you across the field and I'm like, hey, that guy kind of gets, he's kind of going to that place where, where I am. And at least we have some sort of shared um, identity with that, that we're exploring, we're discovering, we're at least seeing what's out there together. Yeah. I mean, it's always easier more comfortable to do uncomfortable things when you don't have to do them alone. Right. Yeah. And I think that is one of the thing I, things I've been thinking about in as Nate and I've talked about this. And even as we've been talking on this, you know, episode is that like, like I said, Nate and I aren't the only ones asking these kinds of questions. And if you are too, like you're not alone in it, even though it often feels very lonely there, you're not crazy, <laughs> you know, um, there are to use Nate's metaphor, other meerkats looking up there too. It's just, we need to, uh, have a better understanding of that or a better, you know, we need to acknowledge that fact. I think we have to acknowledge as well that, um, something that's really important, it doesn't fit into the meerkats, but it's okay not to know it's okay to feel uncomfortable. Life is not a series of scripts that you have to follow. It's not that if you are this conservative Lutheran, you have to do this, 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 and this. People who do that are people who are or people who hold you to that are people who are categorical thinkers, and and really they don't have that power over you. So if you find yourself in a place where you're like, hmm, I'm not really feeling comfortable where I am, but as I look out, I don't know where else I could go. That's okay. And these, that feeling of discomfort, that feeling of like uh, doubt or, um, you know, I've never been able to ask these questions before. Where do they lead me? Is that okay? Like none of that is a sign that you're doing something wrong. Um, you know, it's not a sign that you are walking into error or heresy or sin, you know, I think instead it's an acknowledgement of what what I think we're really called to do as Christians, right? I mm -hmm. think we're really supposed to, hey, if we're working out our own salvations with fear and trembling, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, I don't even say that in jest. Like, that doesn't sound like it's something that's always going to be comfortable. Yeah. But that's okay. Like, not only are you not alone, but that... Have you considered that maybe those feelings of discomfort aren't a sign that something is wrong, but are instead a sign that God is saying something to you that maybe you haven't heard before? And it's certainly a sign of your desire to grow. If anything is going on, it's that you want something more than what you have. And that's okay, too. Even if you have eternal life, even if you have Jesus and you want something more or you want to explore more of what you're feeling and what you're going through, that's okay as well. And uh, to bring my Pentecostal heritage into this, because like I said, I don't want to get rid of it. 
if the Holy Spirit is yourself, well, I can't help myself. It just (laughs) happens. But if the Holy Spirit is really the spirit of truth and will lead us into truth, right? I think we can trust the spirit to lead us somewhere good. I I can't, obviously it may not always feel good, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's certainly going to be hard along the way, you know, but I think we, do we really trust God to, to lead us? Um, and don't get me wrong, I, that's a struggle for me too. You know, that's part of what's made this all so hard for me is that I do really want to trust God, trust God, but it's hard to do sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, I'll admit it. It's hard, you know? Um, so if we really trust the spirit to lead us, we can trust the spirit to lead us in this as well. Yeah. So I want to conclude by saying, if you are a fellow meerkat out there, if you're somebody who's looking up to see if there's any safety, if there's anyone else out there, or one of the words, questions Ryan and I ask ourselves and each other quite often, am I crazy? If you're asking that question and you're hearing this, I want you to know you're not crazy. What you're going through is perfectly normal. It's perfectly okay. It's part of what makes you human, and it's really what makes you the wonderfully complex child of God that you are. And we're so glad that you were able to listen to us for today. Uh, And that is my hope for today's episode, but it's also my hope for the podcast in general. Anything Anything that you listen to from us, that is generally my hope, is that you feel that it is okay where you are, and it's okay not to know. But I wanted to do something very specific at the end of this time and ask Ryan, what is your hope for this particular episode uh, when it comes to Scripture? What do you hope for people? You know, I think my hope with all of this, um, and probably other things we talk about too, but we'll start here, you know, um, is to ask the question, whatever your theology is, whatever you believe about, in this case, Scripture, um, have you really thought about the implications of that theology for yourself? Like, what does that mean for you and your life or your family? But also, what are the implications for the lives of other people? Whatever, whether they're in the in-group or out-group or, you know, whatever category you want to put on there. Like, as we said earlier, these ideas, these doctrines, these principles, whatever you want to call them, they don't exist in a vacuum. And they they really do affect real people in real ways. And I think the first question to ask is not, do I have to change my theology on something? I think what I hope this does for you is first makes you really like ponder, really think on, really dwell on what does this theology mean in a practical sense for me and for the other people in my life. Yeah, that's perfect. That's beautiful. That's what we both want. Um, We are thinking people, not primarily, but, you know, we are trained. I'll get my doctorate eventually. Um, And we want you to think about what you believe. There's there's this common phrase, and we'll kind of end it here, but this common phrase in a lot of podcasting for Christian um, faith. It's know what you believe and why you believe it. Uh, I don't like that per se. I'm not like judging anyone who says that. I get it. It's nice. It it does help. But if I were to put in my own words what Ryan just said, it would be think about what you believe and consider what that does to the people around you and what that does to you. 
because beliefs are not in a vacuum. They have consequences. And the more we realize that, especially when it comes to scripture, the better we can be the children of God that we are called to be. Amen. I like that. (laughs) There's a little bit of my preacher coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Well, 